with that way and a desire to be ever so relevant as I am, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 13. I have been accused of many things over the year. Being too relevant is not one of them. Most of the things I've been accused of are right, by the way. Too much scripture in services. Not trying to attract unbelievers. That kind of stuff. Those are right. Yes, no, I, I, yeah, anyway. All right, let's go to the word of God because therein we will find many more valuable words than the ones that are pouring out of my mouth. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. We return again to the upper room here at the very time that they're about to leave. Judas has left before them the communion of saints, or if you will, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist meal, the communion feast, whatever you want to call it, has been instituted It has been expressed down to them. Jesus has washed their feet. They begged him not to because they do not understand what exactly is going on. And Jesus himself says that what you're looking at is not about what it is, not about the feet. You're not understanding what's happening. You'll understand later. There's going to be a time where leadership amongst Christians is going to cost you a great deal of humility. Sometimes... It is frustrating, sometimes it is enjoyable, but at all times, it necessitates that we treat one another with humble intention. This is what Jesus says to them in washing their feet, and he actually extends it out to the gospel and saying, this is, this is merely the outcome of what the gospel truly does in our lives. For those of you who are in um, our Sunday school, We've been working through the introduction to the book of Proverbs, which, by the way, is nine chapters long, Proverbs 1 through 9. We went through chapter 3 this morning and saw in there the reality that wisdom itself is connected to the concept of the gospel. Both of them start at a fear of the Lord. And here Jesus is saying the same thing. If I don't wash you, how could you ever be clean? And so Peter's like, whoa, goodness, well, then wash everything. Who are you sent from? From the Father. The one who receives me receives the Father. And then he instills the fear of God in all of their hearts that we discussed last time we were in here. One of you will betray me. Only naming it loud enough apparently for Judas and John to hear. And John here in writing about this gives us the reality that Jesus leaned over and said, the one who, puts the, who eats the bread after I have dipped it in the bowl, that is the one who will betray me. Meanwhile, the other ten disciples are over there wondering if it's them. Is it I? Is it I? Is it them? Is it them? Who knows? If it's me, how can I fix that? If it's not me, how can I fix that? In all of this, Judas leaves, and then Jesus turns to his true disciples, the 11, who are actually Christians. For the first time, you have Jesus with only his 11 true disciples. And all of a sudden, his tone changes. Isn't that remarkable? Do you ever notice the switch? It's not long 
It's just a little piece, and we're reading it this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read that short passage that he gives to them about their identity as disciples. We'll back up one verse so we get that connection. Speaking of Judas, after receiving the morsel of bread, this is verse 30, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we indeed pray for this very thing We pray that your spirit illumine our hearts to understand what you have written in your words. Not only to understand, but Father, a far greater miracle to love what you have written. To love one another enough to seek that each other would love what you have written here. We are graciously thankful for the words of Christ here recorded for our ears. We pray that you prepare our ears to hear properly. Not that we may depend on ourselves, but, Father, that we may depend upon Christ more and find him lovely. And, Father, as difficult as it may be, to find lovely those whom he has loved. No matter what difficulty alights our path. We pray, Father, for this. We pray for the encouragement of the saints. May our communion be deeper as a result of the words of Christ here this day. In your Son's name, amen. And you can be seated. Ah, uh, we've heard it a million times. God is love. Right? And in our current culture, the understanding of love is very, very broad. To love somebody, if you said that 50 years ago, it would be to have romantic affection for them. And so men, ever the fans of such flowery things, tended to eschew even that definition. We almost separated ourselves from that, like we don't really even need to talk about it that much. Sure, we'll let our wife know we love them. It's almost Valentine's Day after all. But then somewhere along the line, the definition of love morphed again. Today, it is put off as whatever. Whatever object whatever person, even to the point of, I will never do anything that makes them uncomfortable. That is our culture's definition of love today. May I say, neither of those are the definition of love written in the words of Jesus. The definition of love here is washing the disciples' feet, doing something for someone that they need and is good for them, especially when it costs you. A generosity of devotion, a generosity of service, a generosity of heart and of mind, of money, whatever it takes. 
James will illustrate it in such a way as to say when a brother or sister, meaning another Christian, comes to your doorstep and is starving to death and you just wave your hand over them and say, may the blessing of the Lord be on you. Go your way. Be warm and be filled. I'm glad I'm looking out at a lot of confused faces. What a ridiculous response to a starving brother or sister. You know what James says to that attitude? You think that the love of God dwells in your heart? How could it ever dwell in your heart if that's your response? Sure, it'll cost you a piece of your pantry. There's another Christian we're talking about here. They're starving. You have the ability to meet that need, and all you can think about is, well, that will mess up the organization of my pantry. Many of us in our culture are just fine with it messing up our pantry. And so we think, well, you know, I would never do something like that. Yeah? We worship our schedules as much as they used to worship their pantries. Sorry, don't have time today. Busy, you see. We worship our money in the same way. Sorry, I have bills to pay, retirement to save up for. Here I am not speaking of generosity to the church. That's not even what James is saying. What he is talking about is opening your heart up to the need of another brother and sister that has an immediate, present, clear need in front of you. Meet it. Almost like a reflex. Don't even think about it. That's one of the things that I love about the book of James. It's like going to the doctor. You ever have that little triangle hammer? I don't know why it's a triangle, but little triangle hammer that they hit that nerve in your knee with, right? And they test your reflexes. That's what James is all about. Testing your Christian virtuous reflexes. You have somebody starving on your front porch. What do you do? There you go. Reflex. What's the reflex? Not, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second. This not. It's, it's about how do you respond to the life that God has you walking down. It's all about that. Are you boasting about tomorrow? No. Why would I ever do that? I don't know anything about tomorrow. Are you walking in humility? I sure hope so, because I have nothing in me to trust in. James will kind of face you with that all throughout. Jesus is doing the same thing to them. As we're talking about in Proverbs class, Sunday mornings, 9 a.m., by the way, in case anyone's confused, we're studying the same thing. want to live skillfully? Trust the Lord. In how many ways? In all your ways. Everywhere. What if it leads to bad circumstances? Great. What, are you going to fix them? Can you work your way out of this? If we were left to our own devices, couldn't find our way out of a bag. But in following the Lord, even if we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, still walking us and guide us through it. He does not promise that rocks won't be on our path. He does promise, however, to trust in him. We will not stumble when the rocks come. Jesus says the same thing. Listen to my words, he says. Commit your way to them. Why? Because the man who doesn't is the man who builds his house on the beach where the hurricane's coming. And he just puts it there on top of the sand. When the rains come and the floods come and the waters rise, what happened to that house? Wiped away. He says, but the man who listens to my words, this is Matthew 7 if you're not familiar, the man who listens to my words 
He's like a wise man. He builds his house on the rock. He actually does the hard work of digging through the sand, sets the foundation all the way down on bedrock, puts the sand back, and what does he promise? Does he say, and that man, there's no rains and no floods and no hurricane comes? No. When the rains come and the floods happen, the house stands. It is not a promise of perfect sunny skies. It is a promise of an anchor that holds. It is a very different thing than the health and wealth gospel because the health and wealth gospel is lies and the gospel is not. doesn't make it much more complicated than that. And Jesus here, when he is laying this out to his disciples, waits for the moment that Judas Iscariot leaves and then gives them this. And it's a marvelous point. Look at what he says here. Now's the time. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. My day is not yet. The day is not yet. He has said it over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. And here, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Now, if you were a good Jewish boy and you memorized all your stuff at synagogue, you would know exactly what he is talking about there in the upper room because your mind would immediately go to Daniel chapter 7, the glorification of the Son of Man. Because there, one who has the appearance of a man is lifted up and is given a kingdom that will not perish away and a seat next to the glory on high. And people were so confused about this, though they knew it was somehow connected to the Messiah, they did not understand how. And this is how Jesus continually refers to himself, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. That is not a call to just humanity. That is, you see Daniel 7? That's me. There is the time when the Son of Man becomes glorified, and that is when all the kingdoms of the earth become his. The very thing that Satan promised to Jesus in his temptation back three and a half to four years before this. Remember that? Not only was it about turning rocks into bread or testing the Lord and throwing yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. No, it was also just bow to me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. No suffering necessary. But Christ, wisdom itself, would not be played the fool. Such things will only be purchased through suffering. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And that is a double meaning. Lifted up to the cross in great suffering and lifted up to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Both are in the wheelhouse. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And he takes this moment to when the unstoppable plan of God continues to march forward and nobody at table with him understands the significance of the next day. It's obvious because in the very next passage, Peter's like, I'll never deny you. It doesn't matter what happens. Everything's fine. Tomorrow's just Friday. And Jesus is saying, you're not even going to make it the night. Even though I warn you, you won't make it the night. 
What are we being taught about? Do not trust in yourself. Do not think that we have what it takes to live this life. We do not. That is why we fear the Lord. It is why we acknowledge him in all our ways. It is why we serve him with our whole being, not just with this part of our life or that part of our life, and say, I will be wise and submissive to the Lord here that I may reap the benefits here, but then in this part of my life, I'm just not going to tell anyone about. No, across the board. In every way, at every point, in every corner, in every part of your heart, acknowledge the Lord. And commit your way to him. Why? Because God will be glorified. That should fill God's people with a comfort that is difficult to put into words. And it should fill his enemies with a fear that is difficult to put into words. Let me explain both. The book of Romans makes very clear that God is glorified in humanity two ways. Anyone know them? Let's take the one that Christians bring great comfort from. God is glorified in the salvation of his people. Nobody really disputes that one. It's a lot easier to swallow. It's a lot easier to deal with. And it also wraps us up into it. In God's glorification, he brings us as many sons to glory. It's an incredible promise. And it's something that brings Christians great comfort. But that message is not given without the second one. How is God glorified in those who do not trust him? Say it louder. Justice. A word that our culture has also destroyed. God is glorified in both salvation and justice. He has said this since the very, very beginning, the first time somebody asked him his name. What did he say to Moses? The Lord, that is my name, Yahweh. The Lord, delighting in salvation to thousands of generations and yet will by no ways acquit the guilty. Being merciful to whom I am merciful, being compassionate to whom I am compassionate. In both senses, we have a God who both loves mercy and loves justice and then walks humbly with us. And here we are instructed the same thing. God is glorified and Christian. That should bring you the world's greatest comfort because he will not fail either in glorifying himself or in saving you. Isn't that a testament of great comfort to us? For those of you who are not Christians, God's other message of glorification is sent to say, do not think that you can hide from him in your grave. He will pull you out of it too. Daniel finishes off that series of visions with Daniel 12 that says, many will rest in the dirt of the ground and at the end he will bring all of them raise all of us back and set us back up on our feet, some to life and everlasting joy and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The grave is no friend to anyone because death wasn't the plan. With God, life is. And if you will not have life on his terms, then the second death is. 
And God is glorified in both. And here the Son of Man says to his disciples, now is the time that God is glorified. Now? Why now? John just laid it out and he says, it is now night. Darkness is creeping into the world. The next day is going to only be a couple of hours long because when Christ is on the cross, darkness envelops the land once again and the justice of God rains down on his head and he takes the brutal force of everything that was meant for you and for me. He takes all of that to himself and nature responds with the opposite of God who is light and that is darkness. And Jesus says that is God being glorified and he, the only person in the room knowing what the next day was to bring, knew what it was going to cost him to do that. If you don't think God is glorified in justice, go ahead and ask Christ on the cross what he's experiencing there. Because that is the justice of God on your account and on my account. In order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Hebrews chapter 12 expresses to the church the reason Jesus endured that. It is because there was a joy set before him. Christian, you me the joy set before him he endured the cross why would he do such a thing why not just rid the world of all the sinners because God is not only justice but he also loves mercy And both those virtues are always on display in his creation. Not a one of us deserved salvation. And when God is glorified and the Son of Man glorified with him, the effect goes as far. This is one of the things I love about Christmas songs. They usually have some of the best theology. As far as the curse is found. Wherever sin has found its home, the salvation of Christ will visit it. Does that mean all people will be saved? No. Universalism is a lie. Does that mean all are held accountable for their sins? Yes. Does that mean God will save all that he calls and Christ will lose none of them because he's the good shepherd? Yes. There is not a single person in all of history, past or future, who wants to be saved on God's terms that God does not save. Hear that. Because the desire to be saved on God's terms only comes from the Spirit of God. People put forward caricatures because they do not understand the depravity of humanity's heart and to say, well, if you look at this this way, then that means that God is throwing people in hell that don't want to be there. I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. Paraphrase, excuse me, because I'm not really good with my quotations of things outside scripture. I'll paraphrase C.S. Lewis. There's not a single person in hell that doesn't want to be there. Not one. Because that's who we are outside of the grace of God. 
And here, Jesus lays this on them. And it seems innocuous at first, but I'm trying to get you to understand the severity of what Jesus is saying from their perspective. They have heard this in their synagogues their whole life. The nature of the Son of Man and the promise that is attached to him. And Jesus says to them in verse 32, If God is glorified in him, meaning the Son of Man, then God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. If now is the time, then all of humanity's salvation is about to be achieved. Imagine this for a second. This is the first enunciation that this is about to happen. It's less than 18 hours away. And none of his closest disciples are even aware of it. Nobody else in the world knows except Jesus and Judas Iscariot. Jesus and Judas Iscariot, the only two that know that tomorrow is when it's about to happen. Isn't that remarkable? And Jesus introduces this new era of time to them by saying, this is where all the glory of God will be manifested. Because guess what? As you pull apart the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, what are all of them funneled down to but the very next day that he's talking about? The cross. The shame the justice and the salvation of God both wrought there in a single person, demonstrated in each of the two thieves, shown by both the disbelief of the Sanhedrin who are standing nearby mocking him and the belief of a Roman soldier who shouldn't know any better and yet does. Everything is about to turn. You see, when Satan tempted Jesus with all the nations of the world, he was giving him a shortcut to the Son of Man's role. No suffering. No betrayal. No death. I'll give you all the people. Every single person in the world. I'll relinquish my role. I will relinquish everything. You just have to do one thing. One act. One time, worship me. A legitimate offer. It wouldn't be a temptation if it wasn't legitimate. And what does Jesus do? Just quotes the Bible at him. Worship God alone. He looks to his 11 disciples who are still so confused that they think Judas Iscariot left to go deposit money in a bank. And he looks to them in verse 33 like I imagine he has looked at me many, many times. Little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to those who do not believe, you're going to seek me, but you're not going to be able to find me. <coughs> Where I am going, you cannot come.
What's he mean? Because in the short term, he refers to the cross. None of you has what it takes to do what I'm about to do. But in the long term, the Son of Man alone sits at the right hand of the glory on high. And all 11 of them are going to be left in this world. And Jesus will be gone. And they're going to have to learn what it is to be a follower of Christ when they cannot see his feet anymore. They're going to have to learn what is it that it takes to be a Christian in the midst of a world that is going to hate us as much as they hate the person that we followed that they just killed. Most people are unaware all 11 disciples that were present at that table met their end in a vicious martyrdom. Every one of them. Some people make the exception for the Apostle John because he wasn't actually put to death in his martyrdom. But I'll simply point out that they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil and God wouldn't let him die. And so they exiled him to the island of Patmos where the book of Revelation was written. Somehow in my Sunday school flanagram, they just showed a nice, healthy, vibrant man as opposed to a man in his 80s who had just been scalded head to toe with oil and was nothing but scars walking around. Next time you read the book of Revelation, think about that just a bit more. He's the one who's writing the gospel we're reading. Jesus says to them, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I'm going to leave you a new commandment. Here, for the first time, he's talking to 11 Christians and no unbelievers present. So no, no mincing of words, no hidden text, nothing. Just straight out. I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love each other. That's it. Christians are to love one another. They are to love one another more than anyone else. Christians are to love one another and devote themselves to each other's care and concern and growth and maturity and wisdom more than anyone else, including their own kin. Christians are to love one another more than father or mother or brother or sister. They are to love one another more than their own lives. Christians are to love one another from the deepest recesses of their heart and open themselves up to serve one another for the glory of the Lord. Christians are to devote themselves to the service of one another so that all of us will be presented faultless before the throne of grace, not because we are going to be well-suited to do so. No, sometimes it will cost us dearly to love one another. Sometimes it opens us up for betrayal. Sometimes it opens us up towards all manner of costs that are unforeseeable and yet. Is it worth it? Maybe not in the temporal. A 
That is why the promises of God extend through the grave. I've known Christians that have died with deep regrets in their lives. Deep regrets even of service for the sake of others. Time lost. Time spent that was not repaid. I've seen it many times. I have sat by many bedsides as Christians die. I've heard a lot of things. And it's a strange thing to sit next to somebody who knows that there's nothing left in this world for them. Because there's no temporal promises that will fix. Only the eternal ones work. The real ones. To the Christian, what injustices you experience in following Christ, the justice of God will see to it. Christians, with things you have done in service towards one another that you don't even have recognized, the Lord sees in secret. Do not seek the recognition of man. Do not seek the reward that comes from people seeing your good works out openly. Just do it and do it for the Lord. And if you can do it secretly, let that be your goal. And when you come to the end of your life and realize that all the things you have done have gone unrecognized, all the prayers you have prayed on behalf of ungrateful people. Hold your head up. There is no temporal promise I can give you at that point in your life. And it is why the promise I have given to many people is simply this. The Lord sees, the Lord loves, and the Lord will bring you home. And all the things of this world will fade from your vision. And you will see him face to face. And all this stuff will fade away. Even your sins. Even the things people did for you that you were ungrateful for. Even the things that you did in secret that nobody ever recognized knew it was you. God is with you. Go in peace. Think not for what is left behind. That is another's concern. Think only for what lies ahead. God is with you. And Jesus here, essentially on his own deathbed, isn't looking for encouragement from his disciples. Instead, he is giving it to them. Love one another. 
What you see I do for you, do for one another. Just as I loved you, love one another. He says it over and over and over again. Christians are some of the most annoying people on the planet. Do you know that? We are. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, you think God is just saving the real wise, smart people in the world? He says, look around at church. He says, we're all of us simple people. We're simple enough to realize that we're not all that. God in his multiplicity of ways has seen fit that we recognize we aren't the answer to the world. I'm not even the answer to my own life. Only Christ is that. That's what Christians are. We have finally come to the point of realizing I'm not the end of it all. I'm not the answer for your life. I'm not the answer for mine. You're not the answer for my life either. We're just a bunch of lunkheads that realize that Christ is the answer. Thank God he taught us that. Because I look out at this wide world and I see the majority of people think they or somebody else is the answer. It's election year again. You're about to see it again. Again and again and again. People are not the answer. Only Christ is. We're just the ones dumb enough to be wise enough to know. You can quote me on that. And when we look around at other Christians, we realize that God has not picked the wisest, smartest, most acute people. No, he's picked people like me and people like you. And because of that, my weaknesses are here and so are yours. And they're annoying and they're frustrating and they drive each other crazy. But if Christ has loved you, so can I. And if Christ has loved me, so can you. And if Christ has loved you, then you can love that. And I can. And we can. Because it's not based on how much we appeal to one another. Who cares about who appeals to who? Christ has seen fit to save us by his grace and to bring us to glory. Guess what? We're going to have to get along for all of eternity. Might as well start. This is what Jesus is saying. Disciples, this is the first thing he's ever said to just the 11. The first thing. One commandment, love one another. Because if you don't do that, if you bite and devour one another, what will become of us? What does he say? What will be our testimony? What will be our witness in this world? Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my real and true disciples. How? Because you go out and you're boisterous and you hold them to a certain level of life that looks a lot like you? No, anyone can do that. All the false religions do that. In fact, all the Pharisees did that. No, you do not point people to you. You do not point people to another person. You just 
point them to Christ. And the evidence of the fact that you are pointing them to Christ is that you will love the other ones that Christ loves. Period. That you will give yourself to them no matter what it personally costs you. Pray for one another. Concern yourselves for one another. Do what is good for one another, even if not asked. Point one another to Christ, even though sometimes the encouragement of the temporal world is so tempting to give. Don't worry that everything went bad. Time heals stuff. No, it doesn't. There's some things that never come back with time. Sometimes even if it hurts, we serve one another in the way that each other need, even if it's not requested. not optional he doesn't say a good suggestion for a successful church is this he says I'm going to give you a new commandment one that in generations before the coming of the spirit of God could not happen did you ever wonder in the old testament days in order to follow the God of Israel you had to become Israel one ethnicity, one set of cultural traditions, one set of holidays, one place to worship God on Mount Zion there at the temple. What held them all together was a cultural homogeny. Now that the gospel is about to go out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, there will be nothing that holds Christians together like that. Nothing. We will speak different languages. We will have different cultures. We will have different ways of dress, different ways of order of service, different kind of songs, different tempo of hymns, different everything. Who cares? Christ has seen fit to save us all. And it doesn't matter that I speak a language that the apostles never even thought of or heard of. They don't know English. They didn't write this in English. They spoke Greek. They spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. They spoke like 18 languages. I speak one because I'm American. That's always the joke from my European friends. You speak three languages, you're trilingual. Two languages, you're bilingual. One language, you're American. <laughs> Something I have learned to be absolutely true. There is nothing that will hold us together across those borders. My friends, we have brothers and sisters of every walk of life in this world. And we need each other. You know how I know we need each other? Because Christ gave us each other. The Methodist church would have plunged itself into rank heresy if not for the bishops from Africa not five years ago. 
Thank God for Africa. The light of the gospel would have gone out in China, but for the faithfulness of many, many people who, yes, lived in fear of the government, but lived in a fear of God that was greater. Many righteous and faithful people have gone before us. Many will come after us, and it is not us who we want to be remembered. It is Christ. Christ and nothing more. For that is the way of life. And that is where God will be glorified. And that is how the world will know we're his disciples, because we will carry out something that none of them can do. A love and a deference for people completely different than us that are in the family of Christ. We will do anything for them. There are many, many Christians that live in war zones these days. Pray for them. There are many other Christians that live under regimes that are seeking them down for their own lives. Pray for them. Prayer is a service towards people that do not and are not aware of it. But it's a service nonetheless. I don't mean pray for them so that you can convince God to do something. I mean pray for them because that is a good service to do for them. That they may be faithful and endure to the end. Whatever glorious end that may be. May God give us strength to walk in a manner worthy of a gospel as powerful as that. My prayer for us this week is that we love one another just as he loved us. Let's pray for that. Our Father, that is our goal and that is our aim. That Christ would be glorified, that we would love one another, not just in this church, but Father, Christians throughout this land and throughout this world and throughout history both past and future. What things are given to us to hand down, may we hand down with faithfulness. What revealed things that are given to us in your word, may we love with ferocious appetite. We thank you, Father, for the promises of Christ that extend not only past the grave, but even the heavens and the earth. For even he said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so, Father, until we see you face to face in that new heavens and new earth, we pray that you teach us what it means to walk the way of the cross and to love one another. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.